Luke chapter 19. We'll begin in verse 28 and go all the way through verse 40. Well, we are glad that you are here this morning on Palm Sunday. And this morning we're going to look at that text, Luke's account of the triumphal entry of Christ. Beginning in verse 28, Luke writes this. And when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you that if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time where we can be in the word together. God, I pray that you would glorify your name in this time. God, help me as I teach God to believe and teach and preach what the Bible says is true from this passage. God, help us to take this passage and to apply it to our lives. So Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would bless this time in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, we heard an excellent reminder, an excellent exhortation from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And in that sermon, we were encouraged to run the race that was set before us with endurance. And the key to doing so is where we look whether we are running or walking or crawling or, as Brian said, being dragged along the spiritual walk. Where we are to look is to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so it's fitting that we come to this passage on Palm Sunday because today we're going to take a look at part of Christ's journey that of the path that was set before him. It's the path that led him to the cross, which he endured for the joy that was set before him, because it would lead to the salvation of his people, making him the founder of our faith. And so this morning, let's look at this final section of Christ's journey before he reaches the cross. Verses 28 and 29, let's look back at these. It says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethage and Bethany at the, mo- at the mount that is called Olivet, 
he sent two of the disciples. So when we pick up in this passage, we see that Jesus has just been speaking. He's just been teaching something. Because we see at the very beginning, he said, and when he had said these things. Well, these things refer to what we read of in verses 11 through 27. He's telling the parable of the ten menace. The audience, in the context of this, is the audience supposes that the kingdom of God will appear immediately because Jesus is nearing Jerusalem. So Jesus tells this parable to teach them the true nature of his kingdom and to be prepared for the coming kingdom. And so this helps us to understand that Jesus' journey to Jerusalem is being viewed in terms of the answers of their plea for help. In particular, their hope is that Christ's coming would be the coming of the victorious king to take out their enemies, namely the, the Roman Empire. And Jesus comes to deliver them from their enemies. Jesus' journey into Jerusalem was to conquer their true enemies, sin and hell and death. The establishing of Jesus' kingdom does not come by the sword, but by the transforming work of changing the hearts of humanity through his death. Literally, think about this, as Jesus is going to Jerusalem, he is in fact orchestrating the events that will lead him to his death. He knows what awaits him, and yet he is willing to head towards Jerusalem. He isn't fleeing, but he is willingly laying down his life. That very thing that we read of in John chapter 10, verse 18, when Jesus speaks of his life, says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus goes towards Jerusalem, and he goes so willingly, knowing what lies ahead. In verse 29, we see the progression of travel as he draws near to the neighboring cities of Bethage and Bethany. We see Mount Olivet or the Mount of Olives mentioned here. And this has a prominent place in history, in redemptive history, in terms of geography and the events of Scripture. And as he draws near, you get this heightened sense of anticipation of what is to come. You kind of think about it when you're watching a movie. And the hero gets ready to come to that final destination. And the underscore, the music starts to build. And so you just start to sense that something big is coming in that movie and in that plot where the hero gets there. And the closer that Jesus gets to Jerusalem, the more you can sense the weightiness of what lies ahead. It's another step in the direction towards the cross. But before he reaches Jerusalem... He sends two disciples on a unique errand. Let's look at verses 30 through 34. So backing up in 29, he said, He sent to the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where upon entering it you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said to him, The Lord has need of it. So the disciples are given some pretty simple instructions. They're to go into a nearby village, and when they enter, they're going to see a young donkey, a donkey that's never been ridden. From there, they are to untie the donkey and to bring it to Jesus. Simple enough, right? Get in, get the donkey, get out. I think it's pretty easy. But what happens if the disciples are questioned about their task? Well, Jesus answers this question 
before the disciples even, even ask it. Jesus tells them what to do if someone questions their errand. So if they're asked, why are you untying the donkey? Jesus gives them the answer. The Lord has need of it. So the disciples go, and what do they find? They find it just as Jesus had described. It is just as Jesus described to the point that they are, in fact, questioned about why they're untying the donkey. And just as Jesus commanded, they answered, the Lord has need of it. So the disciples bring that donkey back to Jesus. They throw their cloaks on it. They set Jesus up on the donkey, and he rides the donkey toward Jerusalem. We read this story, and it's easy to go, okay, got it. Got the donkey, move on. But what are we really to make of this exchange right here? Is it just part of the story that helps us geographically get from point A to point B? Or is it just filler? Oh, no, 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 no. There's great meaning in this section of the story because we learn something about the Messiah. I want to draw your attention to at least two significant things that we learn about Christ from these verses. First, these verses are the fulfillment of a prophecy, which consequently proves God's faithfulness to accomplish his plan and fulfill his promise to deliver his people. Long before Christ's coming, the prophet Zechariah prophesied in chapter 9 of the victorious coming king. It's what we meditated upon right before the sermon. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The picture here is the returning king. After the battle and the campaign are over, the enemies are defeated. The king is righteous, doing what is right, having done what is right. The king is bringing salvation and deliverance from his enemies. And as the king returns, the king is on a beast of burden, a donkey. Not a war horse, but a donkey, specifically the foal of a donkey. And so there's this indication that war is over and there's peace. And this is precisely what Jesus does. He is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy in the fullest and truest sense. Jesus is the true and better king because when he enters in on a donkey, it is because the humble king is bringing true deliverance from God's people. The fulfillment of this prophecy, along with all the other numerous prophecies about Christ, prove God's faithfulness to complete his promise for his glory and for the good of his people. If we know and see and read that God is able to keep his promise down to the most minute detail of Jesus riding in on a donkey, then we have assurance and know that Christ did in fact go to the cross and secure our redemption by shedding his blood. Zechariah's prophecy tells us of this coming king to bringing salvation and that is precisely what Christ will bring at the end of this last leg of his journey. This king of whom Zechariah spoke isn't just some king. He's the humble king. And so that's the second thing that we see here. First, we see the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. We see this is part of God's plan. And the second thing we see in this series of events is the display of humility of the Savior King. We tend to think about those who are in high places, monarchs and dignitaries and, and such. We tend to think of them with glory and majesty, and prestige, and regality, and honor, and so forth. 
We don't tend to think about their humility or humiliation when it comes to these same people. In fact, that's one of the beautiful things about Christ. He is humble, and he suffered humiliation. So how do we see Christ's humility in this scene? One of the ways that we see the humility of Christ is in simply requesting of a donkey. Twice in the story, we see the phrase, the Lord has need of it. Now you think for a moment. The Lord of all creation is humbling himself to the point of being in need. The one who supplies all our needs takes on flesh and actually is in need. He needs a donkey to fulfill the prophecy and ultimately God's plan and purpose for his life and for his people. And Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, does so by giving the donkey. What a display of trust in the Father and his plan down to a donkey. And if Christ being in need wasn't scandalous enough for us, think of actually what he needs. He needs a donkey. Not something glorious, but a donkey. Something he already has sovereign rights over. You think about it. Christ was at creation. He spoke into existence the very first donkey. And yet he has a need of a donkey right here. It's the same one that we read of in Psalm 50, verses 10 and 11, when it says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. That's the same one that we are speaking of. The one who owns all creation needs a donkey. Christ's humility, you have to see, permeates this scene in the totality of Christ's ministry. But I'd be remiss if I did not mention the pinnacle of Christ's humiliation and his humility, the cross. The final display of Christ's humiliation and humility is on the cross where he dies a cruel death on behalf of wretched and vile sinners. This true king doesn't lord over his people, but rather he lays down his life for the people, thus delivering them from their true enemies. So let's stop for a moment and think about why Christ's humiliation is so incredible. Why is his humility so marvelous? It's because of what Mark Jones writes in the book, Knowing Christ, in chapter 15 on Christ's humiliation, which you're going to get to in a couple of weeks. Spoiler alert, this is free. He writes this. There has never been a great humiliation of a person than that of Jesus. No one has ever descended so low because no one has ever come from so high. He stripped himself of the prerogatives of his divinity and the robes of his glory. And for what? That he might be the object of shame and ridicule. This scene right here is another piece of God's plan in order to bring Christ to the point of shame and ridicule culminating in the crucifixion for the deliverance of his people. It's what Paul writes about in Philippians 2, 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this scene is what is leading to that. In this text, from this scene, I want to remind you, we see two things. We see the nature of God's sovereign plan and the character of Christ in the coming of the humble king. But a final note on this section that I don't want us to miss is that of the obedience of the disciples. Think about it. They listened to him. They obeyed him without question. 
even if it perplexed them what he was asking them to do, they still trusted Jesus and they did it. The obedience in this section is only a part of their response. This would actually give way to full-blown praise and adoration. Verses 36 and following. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. As the story moves, Jesus is placed on the donkey and he begins his travel. Along, along his way, the disciples begin to place their cloaks on the road. By all accounts, the laying of the cloaks and laying down of palm branches would have shown a sign of respect and regality in regards to Christ and nod to his kingship. But one note you might be thinking about is, hey, it's Palm Sunday, this is a Palm Sunday passage, but here, the sister passages mention the palm branches, but Luke doesn't. Luke omits the use of palm branches. Well, another slight variation in this text, too, is Luke doesn't mention the word Hosanna. And so, why, why this distinction? Why would Luke leave these out? Well, likely it's because Luke is writing to a broader audience. He's writing to Gentile Christians. And so he would have omitted uh, complex Jewish customs and themes of that nature and words because he knows the audience to whom he is writing. He wants to write in a way and communicate his point in a way in terms in which they could relate. But the sentiment is the same. You see them saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In all the gospel accounts, we see something wonderful here. As Jesus draws near in verse 37, the disciples respond to Jesus with loud voices of praise and rejoicing. What prompts this is what Scripture tells us is that they have seen and experienced the mighty works that Jesus did. What they witnessed was the blind receiving their sight, the deaf hearing, the lame walking, diseases being healed, even the dead raised to life, and the gospel is being proclaimed. That's what they've witnessed. That's what they've seen. And what that does is it causes praise and adoration to come forth what they had seen all these works are what one writer described as one continuous demonstration of God's power what the people are responding to is the power of God displayed in Christ all of these displays of God's power were for the purpose of pointing to who Jesus is and what he came to do and that he was sent by God as the crowd rejoices the people uh, praise God, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This harkens back to Psalm 118, verse 26, which was part of the passage that we read earlier in the service. This is messianic in nature, meaning it's pointing to the Messiah, the anointed one, the, the one chosen by God to deliver His people. It's the term Christ in the New Testament. This king, this Messiah is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He is sent by the Lord to do his will and accomplish his perfect plan. Jesus is this king. Jesus is this Christ. So what does he come in the name of the Lord to do? We've already mentioned it, but it bears repeating. The chosen king comes to deliver his people and to reign over him. He comes to lay down his life as a ransom for God's people. So they're crying out to this blessed king. 
But their praise doesn't stop there. Their praise ends with the phrase, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Maybe you've made the connection. You hear peace in heaven. You might think back to the Savior's birth account. In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, when the angels and the heavenly hosts proclaim at the Savior's birth, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. These statements act as sister statements and kind of key markers in redemptive history. You know, when we say the word glory in the highest, what we in essence are saying here is that we desire that God's name would be glorified to the highest degree. And it's a recognition that God's glory is reaching high and far above all. But let's back up to that peace in heaven part. It's a little bit different than the birth account, isn't it? Where it says peace on earth. Well, here we're saying peace in heaven. So what's the difference? Why the distinction? Why would Luke record it this way? Well, we first must understand what the inclusion of peace here is. It's not just some well-wishing. In order for peace to happen, God has to intervene because humanity is marred by sin, meaning in their natural state they do not have peace with God, nor do they have peace with others. The good news is, is God does intervene. And when the angels proclaim peace on earth at the Savior's birth, it is an invitation to have peace with God through the newborn King, the newborn Messiah, the Savior who would live a perfect life and die on the cross. This initial invitation ushers in the offer of hope and peace. However, in this account, we see that the phrase is peace in heaven. It is used to signify something to us with its distinction. True peace can only take place when one is reconciled back to God. In heaven, there is full embracing of God. It's untainted by sin. People love His ways, and so there is peace. There is true peace. And in the irony of all ironies, Jesus is peacefully and humbly coming towards Jerusalem and entering it, which is translated the city of peace. But what is it that the Savior meets in this city of peace? Rejection, opposition, even his death. And we see this opposition and the rejection before, long before he gets to Jerusalem. And we see it here in the next response that the Pharisees offer in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Short verse, but a lot there. Because we go from seeing the disciples praising Christ, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And in here we see some of the Pharisees offer a counter-response. They bark at Christ to silence His disciples. And in fact, they're actually asking Christ to reprimand the disciples as if they were doing something wrong. It's because the Pharisees are blind and have rejected the Messiah. He is literally right before their faces, performing miracles, testifying to the coming kingdom, and their hearts are hardened. In verses 38 and 39, we really see two clear responses to Christ, to the person of Christ and the work of Christ. We have the disciples' praise on the one hand, and we have the Pharisees' scorn on the other. Guess what? We see the same responses in our day, don't we? People either reject Christ because of their sinful hearts and the blindness to the truth of who Christ is and what He came to do, or by the grace of God, the Spirit of God, opens their hearts to the beauty of the gospel and they are changed and rejoice at the sound of His name. 
In essence, it's the same sentiment that Paul would write about in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16 when he writes, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, the fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. To God's people, seeing Christ is the aroma of life. But to those who are his enemies, it is the aroma of life. Of death. So pause for a moment. Which is it for you? Ask yourself what your response to Christ is. Who he is. Who he says he is. What he's done. And I don't just mean what you speak. But your lives. Do your lives reflect one that would echo with the disciples' praise of blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord? Or would your life reflect more of the heart of what's going on with the the Pharisees? It's a very important question for all of us, myself included, to ponder right now. Such an important exchange that we see Jesus bring it up in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18, when he looks at the disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? And the only true way to answer this question is to see who Christ is from the word of God, believe him and trust him. Because he is the Christ, the son of the living God. He is who he says he is and he did what he came to do. And right here, the disciples are praising him and the Pharisees are are scorning him. And listen, in just a short little while, we'll we'll go from blessed is the king who comes to the name of the Lord to the crowds crying, crucify him, crucify him. And the disciples' praise will be turned into mourning over the death of the Messiah. Christ knows that this is coming. But does it stop him? Even that little bitty objection, that little bitty opposition from the Pharisees, does it stop the Savior? Does the opposition stop God's plan of salvation? No, it does not. And that's actually what we see in verse 40 in Jesus' response to the Pharisees. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out the response here in verse 40 is the perfect rebuttal to the pharisees demands for the disciples silence jesus says i tell you oh we got to hold up and stop here for a minute it's easy just to read over that and go i tell you okay jesus is saying i'm saying but let's think about the one that's speaking When Jesus says, I tell you, this isn't a small thing because the one who is speaking is the one who spoke creation into existence. It's the same one at the Mount of Transfiguration when God enters the scene, speaks of him and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So when Jesus says, I tell you, guess what? We need to stop and take note and listen. When Jesus speaks, we need to stop and listen. And that's the same thing. And the the problem with the Pharisees is that they rejected Christ. They rejected his words. They rejected his deeds. So what Jesus warns them of this fact, and, and when he's talking about not silencing the disciples, is that the praise of God will not be silenced, and God's plan will not be stopped. So how does he illustrate this point? I love it. Rocks. 
inanimate, lifeless rocks. If the disciples were to be silent, then God is able to make the impossible happen and stones are able to cry out from God changing them to make them speak his praises. Could you imagine if you're walking in your garden, if you've got stones in your garden, and all of a sudden they started singing? It would shock us because we know that's impossible. That's, that's silly. But God is able to make this happen and the stones could cry out. And if these stones were to cry out, what is it that these stones would say? I'm glad you asked me. I was going to tell you anyway. They would tell of his excellent character and his excellent greatness. They would proclaim his mighty deeds. They would testify to who Christ is and what he came to do. You see, the disciples' words of praise are more than just words of affirmation. They are proclaiming truth. They are words of truth about Christ. It's more than just an attaboy, but it is the proclamation of truth of who Jesus is. And if Jesus would have silenced these disciples, then he would have been denying the truth of who he is and what he came to do. Jesus' response to the Pharisees shows that his character and his mission are so sure and that God is able to and will accomplish his perfect plan and no enemy can stand against God or his plan. It is more possible for rocks to cry out than for God's plan to be stopped. What an encouragement for us today, believers. What an encouragement. See, there's a lot at stake here with the triumphal entry. Because if this impossible act of stones crying out took place, then it would indicate that hope would be lost because God would have failed. But Christ did not silence the disciples because he is who he says he is. And he came to do what the Father sent him to do. Praise God, he did not fail. And so Christ enters triumphantly. So what makes this a triumphal entry? He's coming on a donkey. He's coming humbly. He's getting some praise, but he's meeting some opposition. So what makes it so triumphant? It's triumphal because of the one who enters. The Son of God took on flesh and entered this fallen world. It is triumphal because of what he did. He lived a perfect life. He performed miracles and he testified to the coming kingdom. It is a triumphal entry because of what he was going to do and he did it by humbly and willingly laying down his life on the cross to pay the debt that you and I owe to God, thereby satisfying the wrath of God on the cross. And it is triumphal because he would not stay dead. That's why this is a triumphal entry. It's the triumphal entry that was leading to his death and resurrection that would lead to the salvation of God's people, giving them victory over sin and death and hell because Christ has defeated all of his enemies. That's what makes it triumphal. That's why we can rejoice in knowing what's coming with the cross. This triumphant entry, though, isn't just some story. Let me plead with you. This is not just some story. It's truth. And it demands a response. So what should our response be to the triumphal entry? Unbeliever, I would appeal to you today to turn to the humble king, the Savior. Repent and trust in him. 
believe in Jesus because he is who he says he is and he did what he came to do to lay down his life for people to be reconciled back to God. I would plead with you. Believer, because of this, we can rejoice in the blessed King and we should rejoice in the coming of the King. We should rejoice in the one who is the blessed King, who came in the name of the Lord, who brought salvation, who has redeemed us. We are able to join our voices with the disciples saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That should be our response. And our response, believers, should be to also go into the world and tell of His excellent greatness, to tell the world of this King. We should not keep it to ourselves, but loudly proclaim it for the world to hear. We need to cry out in praise and adoration of the triumphant King who won the victory through His death and His resurrection. We can cry out now, today, and proclaim to the world what we heard at the beginning of this service in Psalm 96. We can join our voices and we can sing Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. Father, we are thankful that the Lord is come. That our King has come and He humbly came, taking on the form of flesh in a fallen world. And God, that He was tempted in every way as we are, but yet He remained sinless. And God, that He willingly laid down His life on the cross as the perfect sacrifice because that's what You intended for Him. And Lord, He did not falter. He did not sway in any way. So, Lord, there is joy that we can have in this world because the King has come. And, God, we can rejoice in his triumphal entry knowing that he went to the cross, that he died, and that you raised him by your power. And, God, he ascended, he reigns forevermore, and he is coming back for his bride. Oh, God, we give you the praise for that. So, Father, we ask that as we respond in song, Lord, that we would take time to meditate on this wondrous mystery of Christ coming. It is indeed wondrous and it is indeed a mystery to us. But God, we pray that you would receive the glory as we respond to our blessed King who came in your name. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, the name above all names. Amen.